Thanks for tuning in to High Green, the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society's official podcast. High Green is funded by your membership in the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society, and any opinions expressed throughout the show are solely those of the owner. We hope you enjoyed today's show, and as always, if you're interested in learning more about our organization, you can visit our website, www.bmrrhs.org. Perhaps this story hasn't been told in B&M circles, but no. it's a B&M story and it's a good one. And the next thing you know, we hear 119 getting out of town with his steam engine working like the hell. He's going up by way of Rutland. Hello and welcome back to High Green, the official podcast of the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society. My name is Rick Kafori, and we've got a really good episode here for you today after a little bit of a summer hiatus. But before we get to the episode, just wanted to run by you some society news that we've been up to in the summertime. Our committees are busy at work. The Archives Committee has been busy specifically digitizing, scanning, and cleaning the Robert Chafin Negative Collection. This enormous collection of negatives dates from the 1930s to the early 1960s and was taken by Boston and Maine employee Robert Chafin. And among the Boston and Maine are Maine Central, Delaware, and Hudson, a number of other interesting railroads that he photographed as well. The Society was present at the Concord Model Railroad Club show in August. President Jim Niggs's member John Schnabel and myself manned the table, and it was great to see a lot of old friends, some new faces, and wanted to thank everybody that came out to support the Concord Model Railroad Club and the Boston and Maine Railroad Historical Society at the show. Now on to today's episode, I got the chance on August 11th to sit down with a good friend of mine, Bruce Davison. Bruce is a friend to many in the New England railroading scene and has quite a history railroading himself. He grew up around the Boston and Maine in the Concord, New Hampshire, and Henniker area and eventually went to work for various short lines operating on former Boston and Maine Railroad trackage in the state of New Hampshire. At first, he went out to work for the Claremont and Concord Railway, and was actually present for quite a few notable events, including the last train to Newport, New Hampshire, on which he was the conductor. He also then worked for the Wolfboro Railroad Central Division operating on the White Mountain Branch from Concord to Lincoln and later on for the New England Southern Railroad operating on the White Mountain Branch, as well as the New Hampshire Division Main Line from Concord to Manchester and Concord to Penacook, New Hampshire. The first part of the interview today will cover Bruce's early history as a child growing up around the railroad and eventually going to work for the Claremont and Concord. And part two, airing next week, will cover his time with the Wolfboro and the New England Southern. Bruce has a great way of telling a story, so... I hope you enjoy the conversation just as much as I did. Okay. Kind of starting, you know, obviously growing up in Hanneker and kind of being around not necessarily the railroads as they are active, but sort of the remnants that were left over. Yeah. Well, how did that kind of like affect you wanting to work for the railroad? And how did you really become knowledgeable about the railroad and interested in, in the railroad from that sort of perspective, that you wanted to become sort of part of it? Well, my first encounter with a, with a train was at Mammoth Road uh, crossing on the Portsmouth branch in Manchester yeah. when I was two years old in a stroller with my mother uh, pushing me, 
and the lights came on, so we had to stop and wait for the train. And I remember the, the horn, I remember it very vividly. And years later, my mother said, you probably don't remember that, do you? I said, I remember that just as if it happened yesterday. Yeah. And it really had an imprint on me. And I've always thought, you know, at that moment, what if a bus had gone by instead of a train? Maybe I'd be a bus fan. <laughs> True. But once I saw that first train, that was it. Everything was trains. Yeah. It just hit me at the right time. Uh, I'd go through books and magazines looking for pictures of trains. Uh, we lived in, in Pembroke. As when I was growing up, and uh, at the age of three or four, I guess so. I knew I knew when the passenger trains would be going by on the B and M main line, and I could hear them off in the distance. So I'd, I'd be listening for the trains. So it just everything was railroad. Yeah. And you know, by this time the Suncook Valley was gone. Um, the B and M was still running into Concord. Uh, you know, a lot of passenger trains, a lot of freight. And for my birthday, I think it was my sixth birthday, I got a tr ride on the Bud car from Concord to Manchester. And my father picked my mother and I up at the station in Manchester. I just thought that was the best thing ever. And then in 1961, when Blount was first running the steam tank excursions out of Bradford, for my eighth birthday, I rode behind steam. Yeah. And that was really something. And just railroads have just been, always been there. We moved to Henniker in uh, April of 1961, and the tracks had been torn up the previous fall from the CNC had torn them up. So I missed seeing the CNC in Henniker by a very, very small amount. Mm -hmm. And once I discovered Railroad Magazine, my mother bought me a copy of Railroad Magazine one day. I came home from school and there it was. I never knew there was a magazine about trains. Yeah. I just thought this is the best thing yet. Yeah. I went back down to the drugstore and bought a copy of Model Trains magazine. And that was just as good as, as that railroad magazine. Then I realized that there was a lot of interest in railroads. It wasn't just me. <clears throat> so by reading the magazines, it just opened up a whole new world for me uh, for the hobby. And went kind of went from there, you know, rides on Steamtown for my birthday, uh, rides from Concord to Manchester. All these things were various Christmas gifts and things. What a great Christmas gift that was <laughs> from my sister. Yeah. Bought me a ticket and then picked me up down in Manchester. Mm. Fabulous. And then kind of how did that branch into sort of collecting like historical documents and pieces and I know you know you had sort of a little railroad museum when you were a kid it's kind of a neat story there but how did that yeah. how did that go from sort of like a situational awareness of the railroad around you growing up how did that kind of weave its way in you know through the magazines and that sort of thing into sort of collecting and, and getting to know people and building those contacts well my my parents were antique dealers so I was in antique shops in flea markets with them all the time. And I would see things and say, I'd like to have that. So my father would give me jobs to do to earn money. Uh, he was a stamp dealer, so that could, that could earn money with stamps. I could buy lanterns. The first two lanterns I ever bought 
were a little shop on East Side Drive in Concord. They were $3 a piece, a short globe, uh, Canadian Pacific, and I think maybe a Dietz Vesta B&M one. Yep. And the man was a former B&M baggageman. They had them. They had quite a few lanterns, but I bought those two. And that got me started, and that's all it took. Then from there, uh, every penny I could find would go to buy railroad books, timetables, any kind of memorabilia. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother, one time when she was out, found a Northern Railroad employee's timetable that she bought for me from about 1878 or so. Yeah. That's a, a still a prized item in my collection. For sure. One year for my birthday, there was a nice B&M marker lantern at an antique shop. And it was $20. And my parents said, for your birthday, we'll pay half if you'll pay half. I worked. I coughed up 10 bucks. And they coughed up 10 bucks. And I had a lant marker lantern. I still have it. Yep. And it was, it was just through that. Uh, one time, I was home. Uh, sick. I used to help my father. We used to do some antique shows. I'd go with him. So I was homesick, and Dad found a Boston Lowell lantern, nice bell-bottom lantern with marked globe, B&L, RRLS, which is Lowell system. I've never seen another one. Hmm. Dad bought it for $12 for me. As he's walking around the show, Glenn Kidder come up to him. And said, gee, I'd like to buy that lantern. And Dad said, I'm going to bring it home for my son. He's, he couldn't make it today. He's, he's sick at home. So Dad and Glenn got to talking. And uh, Glenn, you know, got directions to our house. But he was always buying, too. Yeah. And he came over, and Glenn and I got to be very good friends. And he was one of my first contacts with, uh, you know, a rail fan. And he took me under his wing told me a lot about the BCNM, the Concord Railroad, the Northern, all these early New Hampshire railroads, the Cog Railway, which is his, his, his big favorite. Yeah. And this was probably 1965 or so. And I put an ad in the switch list in Railroad Magazine, which give you a free ad. So I put a classified ad in looking for anybody interested in the Suncook Valley. Well, I got a number of responses, one from Howard Moulton from Portsmouth, mm -hmm. uh, Willis Hendricks from San Diego, California, and several other uh, people around the country. So I corresponded with these people and got to got to know them a little bit. And then a couple months later, I put an ad in looking for anybody interested in the Claremont and Concord. I got one response, but what a response it was. Yeah. It was Brent Michaels. And Brent and I were friends from that moment on until his recent passing. And that's when I started to really get to know the rail fans and get to really understand the hobby and, and just how dedicated people are to the hobby. Yeah. And it's definitely kind of a unraveling for sure. As you said, you know, it's about who you know, really. Right. Once you meet one person, and then it leads to so many others, and you know everybody has their own little aspect of the hobby they're interested. That's the thing I like the most about the hobby is that somebody might be into lanterns, and somebody that you else that you know is into signals, or somebody else is into track, or so everybody knows what everybody else is interested in, and that helps people kind of give back and contribute, and 
always looking out for something somebody else is interested in. And That's probably the best part of the hobby of all is the sharing it with other people. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's some people that are like a black hole. Everything goes in, nothing comes out. And that doesn't advance our hobby. But what advances our hobby is when we all work together and the spectacular finds uh, get to be shared by people that can appreciate them. So it's it's what's drawn me into the hobby and keeps me very active in the hobby. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, too, when you talk about, you know, when you're growing up, obviously we're talking about the late 50s, early 60s, where a lot of this stuff was was in terms of being removed from sort of its original location or original place. A lot of it hadn't traveled terribly far. Because we're not talking about a huge span of time here between, you know, when these things were active and when they had become less active. So do you feel like back then it was easier to find people, artifacts, photographs versus today where things have passed around and, and traveled around more? And it was easier to find these remnants of sort of these railroads in the public eye versus having to wait 60 years like we are now and then sort of piece things together over the past half century? I think as far as hardware and, and that sort of paraphernalia like like lanterns and, and locks and signs and that sort of thing, that was fairly plentiful because everything being liquidated, scrapped, uh, it could, you could find it at a pretty modest price. Mm -hmm. Photos, not so much because didn't have the way of reproducing them like we do now. True. Scanners were not available. Everything was all photographic process. It took time. It was a slow process. Mm -hmm. Where now with scanners and, and uh, you know, electronics, you, you can transmit hundreds of pictures, you know, in a, in a moment yeah. compared to two or three pictures in an envelope coming snail mail. Right. So the, the, Photo part has really grown exponentially now, but the, the hardware has been collected up, and a lot of it is just in collections, and it's just not going to be available mm -hmm. for the time being. That's certainly the human aspect of it, too. I think, you know, when you were growing up, like you said, the antique dealer was a baggage man, and I think a lot of these people had these connections mm -hmm. to the railroad, whether they worked there for a few years or their family members did, and sort of that community connection is kind of vanishing Right. In terms of at least the Boston and Maine, and, and when you think about the Claremont and Concord and Sunkook Valley, those have been gone. Well, Sunkook Valley's been gone for 70 years. Yeah. So I think, you know, the human aspect of it certainly has changed a lot, too, from when you were growing up. Well, we've, we've lost a lot, of the, a lot of the people that had the stories and had the experiences. And, you know, even those like myself that have worked in the industry... Uh, we're, we're fading too. So we, you know, we have to find all the information that we can when we can and, you know, get it written down, get it recorded in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's not lost. So that's what we're doing today. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Especially now too, we're kind of seeing a transition period now where I think when you were growing up, there was sort of a transition period from those that were around and remembered steam. And now we're kind of seeing a transition period now those that were around remembered the Boston and Maine actually. Right, maroon and gold. Right, you know, that's that's sort of becoming a transition period now. So I think it's it's just as important now as ever. Right. For sure. Now, when you were growing up in Henniker, what was, obviously the railroad had, had just disappeared, you know, the year previous to when you arrived in 1961. But was there still sort of a, a community 
memory of the railroad. Was there any sort of memory of the railroad in, in Henniker, even though it had disappeared? Not very much. Yeah. Uh, Clarence Fitch, who was the manager of the Merrimack Farmers Exchange in Henniker, uh, you know, he he'd reminisce about the railroad because that was they were one of the customers, and he grew up in Claremont with uh, Clarence Lambert, yeah. who later on was a was a motorman, not motorman, a conductor on the Claremont Railway, and who wound up being an engineer on the Claremont and Concord, and who was the engineer on the last train out of Henniker. So there was that. But other than that, the, most of the townspeople, I don't think really even knew there'd been a railroad in town. It was pretty quiet towards the end. There wasn't much business there yeah. in Henniker. And it, it, at best, it was probably three times a week, maybe, yeah. coming into town it, towards the very end. Mm -hmm. Not many carloads, obviously. Not a lot. So you wouldn't necessarily get caught at a crossing for very long. So. Right. You know, there was a paper mill in West Henniker. That was the, the furthest uh, extent of the, of the Claremont and Concord was that to get to that paper mill. Uh, had a, a Chevy dealership, CW Row, used to get cars in uh, by rail cars. <clears throat> then you had some uh, lumber uh, coming in and out of town and, and some feed, but there was very little. Right. Very little. Yeah, and then of course West Hopkinton, you know, had the coal. Right, Hogue Sprague paper mill. Yeah. yeah. Which is gone now. That's that's yeah. all gone. That's all gone. Yeah. yeah. You know, when they when they were building the Hopkinton Dam, there was some loads of cement came in and unloaded on the coal trestle there yeah. at West Hopkinton too. Mm -hmm. Which is something I never knew about until just a very few years ago. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah, I'm surprised they didn't get more heavy equipment in that way. Because there wasn't, there wasn't, I mean, when you think about the area in that time period, you know, obviously the highway system hadn't really come to be at 89. So, you know, the state roads would have been the only way to get in construction materials. Right. So I would have been, I would have been surprised if they hadn't gotten more, but cement definitely makes and, sense. And, and they may have gotten more. We just don't, we just don't, we just don't know. We just don't know about it. Right. And then you, you spent some time in, in, and uh, Deering too, as well, is that right? Near Hills, the Hillsboro branch. I, I go, I go to Hillsboro. Yeah. My father would go to Hillsboro to deliver antiques. Yep. And we'd see the cars at Valancourt Oil. Yep. Always be a couple of cars there. And then, when the covered bridge in Bennington burned, the stranded the B and M eleven twenty two, and some cars and a caboose. It was stranded there for a couple of weeks. Yep. So I went up there and took a lot of pictures, mm -hmm. which I've got around here somewhere, but I can't <laughs> seem to locate them. By that time, Hillsborough Branch was starting to dwindle pretty good, on the, on the Hillsborough end especially. Right. Wasn't much there. Yeah. They get an occasional carload of wood pulp for the paper mill in, in West Henniker, and that would come in. And there's a, a storehouse there in Hillsborough mm -hmm. for that. Yeah. But just just not much traffic no. in, into Hillsborough. No. One of those strange locations, which is so deep in New Hampshire, it's kind of strange to think that it made it into the diesel era of the B&M. Yeah. You know, it's, it's weird when you think about Hillsborough having seen diesel freights, you know, as recently as 1970, 71, 72. But, you know, it's one of those places where it kind of held out just long enough to make it into that identifiable era. But right. at the same time, it's kind of has the vestiges of the steam era, too, with the turntable, yeah. the covered bridges and all that. So, definitely interesting. 
Um, so getting back, I guess, to the Claremont and Concord, you ended up working there. How did that come about? Well, you know, after I took that ride on, uh, you know, Blount Steamtown train, then the Claremont and Concord became kind of a hot button for me. Yeah. And in 1964, my sister was home uh, during summer vacation, and I was able to talk her into giving me a ride to Claremont. Mm -hmm. And she went out clothes shopping and just dropped me off my, my brownie box camera down in the freight yard. And I just thought it was the most wonderful sight to see the 17 come up out of the shoe yard, come around the curb by Claremont Flock and, and come up into the yard. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the first CNC 44 tonner I'd ever seen. Yeah. And I thought this, was, this is wonderful. And I hung around that yard for about an hour before my sister came back. Now, you, you got to remember, I was about 10 years old, didn't know anybody, nobody knew me, uh, and I was just as happy as could be. Yeah. And uh, taking pictures, just hanging out. And then I heard this bell ringing, and I looked, and here comes the 18 pulling the burrow crane coming right up through the yard. I don't know where they were heading for. I got one picture yeah. of that. And it was a little blurry, but it was a picture nonetheless. Mm -hmm. So that really cemented my interest in the CNC. After that, I couldn't get enough of the CNC. Well, in 1971, they ran two fan trips, and Brent Michaels rode the first one. And then when he got the fly off the second one, he called me and said, you know, let's go up and take pictures. So we chased it in my 64 Chevy convertible. Yeah. And we had a great time. I almost got hit at one of the crossings, and Biff Rainey remembered that. So by this time, I'm hooked on the CNC. I realize it's really not that far from Henniker to go up to Claremont. So in March of 1972, there was a, a little article in the Manchester Union Leader said that the Claremont and Concord had dropped a boxcar full of paper into the Sugar River. Yep. So I said to my father, I said, yeah, I'd kind of like to see that. And he said, oh, why don't you get in your car and go see it? And that's a great idea. So I said to my mother, I said, come on, let's go, let's go up to Claremont. Maybe we'll stop at some antique shops and I can get some pictures. Yeah. Well, I certainly got some pictures of a central Georgia boxcar upside down with the slogan, the right way, <laughs> upside down. And I thought this was pretty fascinating. We're up in the yard, got pictures of the 18. Went out of the junction, got pictures of the 110 sitting rather derelict, yep. former B&M 110. So about a week later, I th thought, I think I'd like to go up there again and see what they're doing with that boxcar. Well, by this time, they they got the bridge repaired. They were re repairing the, the broken timbers that first time I went up. The second time I went up, they had the burrow crane and a flat car, and they were unloading paper. <clears throat> I thought this was pretty good. Then when they get that load of paper ready, they coupled up the 17 onto it and brought it out to Koi paper to run it through again. Yep. Well, I just thought this was this was really, really good. Got a lot of good pictures. You know, the people were nice to talk with. A little I could talk with them. They were pretty busy. So I said, gee, I, I should come up here more often. So I, I came up again, I think it was in June. May or June, and 
went to the went to the barn and started taking pictures and went inside, talked to the guys. Bill Dow was the mechanic, and Biff Rainey was uh, superintendent. Well, Biff's painting the end of an engine black on the footboards, and we're talking, just uh, talking about railroads and just having a nice chat. He finally said to me, he said, so, so what do you do for work? I said, restore antique furniture. And he, he paused for a minute and he said, how'd you like to come to work for us? Sure. He said, we're getting ready to fire a guy pretty quick here. So we're going to have an opening. He says, give me your name and address, phone number. And he says, uh, I'll give it to the boss. He says, you know, maybe, maybe they'll hire you on. Okay. So that's pretty exciting to me. That was the extent of my interview. <laughs> so I went home and, and back working on furniture, but boy, I'm, I'm thinking railroad, 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 yeah. not thinking about furniture too much. And then one day I was out, went to the post office. I came back. My mother said, Mr. Bump from the Claremont and Concord called. I'd like to have you give him a call back. Here's his number. So I called him back and he says, I understand you'd like to work for a railroad. And I said, yes, sir, I would. He said, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow. And he said, be at the engine house at 7 o'clock. <laughs> I arrived about 6.20. Yep. I was anxious. Nobody else was there. I had to wait for the people to show up. And they put me right on the train with uh, Clarence Lambert and a guy that nickname was Finnegan. And... It's a wonder I survived because some of the stuff that Finnegan told me to do, I shouldn't have been doing, like riding the footboards yeah. on, the, on the leading end of the engine. One day Clarence said to me, he says, get up here in the cab, you damn fool, you get killed out there. I said, Finnegan told me to ride out here. He said, don't listen to him, he doesn't know anything. I said, I didn't know that. So I, I went back in the cab. Finally, Sonny Ferris, who'd been out on medical leave, he came back and he was very good about helping me uh, to understand what to do and how to do it. They didn't have a training program. They just put you out there with somebody else and expect you to learn it. Mm -hmm. And Clarence wasn't too good a teacher. He would he'd stick his head out of the cab and holler and shake his fist, <laughs> but that didn't, that's not a very good teaching method. Right. So there were times I used to think, Maybe I just not cut out to be a railroader. I just don't understand how this stuff works. And then one day it just clicked. And after that, it went, it went really easy. So then I left, and Clarence was sad to see me go, which really kind of surprised me. He stopped in at my mother's antique shop and said, I'm going to really miss working with Bruce. And when she told me that night, I said, Clarence Lambert said that about me? She says, yeah, he really likes you. I said, he's kept it well hidden. Yeah. He'd been there for a while, right? Clarence had been there, in, in all told, he was there, I think, 44 years. Wow, jeez. That's the Claremont Electric and the season. Claremont Electric and the Claremont and Concord. And he had one year he worked for the Southern Railway. Huh. He never explained what that was all about. I never really asked either. Yeah. But he was the last Claremont Railway employee. And... You know, knowing what I know now and my how deep my interest is now in the Claremont Railway, 
I should have been grilling him every day with questions about the Claremont Railway. Right. But I, I didn't know. I just didn't know. And how long had Pete Bump been the, the general manager there when you started? How, how long ago did Pete start? Yeah. Pete was there right at the very beginning. Okay. When, when the railroad uh, started the first day of the Claremont and Concord, December 17th, 1954, and he was the freight agent from day one in Claremont, and Walt Connors was freight agent over in Newport. Okay. And then uh, eventually they closed the Newport office after about a year or so and consolidated everything into Claremont. And the general manager was John Long at the time. And after he passed away, I believe was when Pete got to be general manager. Now, so when you were when you were at the CNC, so there were, you know, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that that the Claremont and Concord, which which was formed in 1954, was was the combination of the B&M's Claremont branch and the former Claremont Electric, which was the in sort of the street running industrial trackage within the city of Claremont itself. What was the traffic level like when you started there in, in the early 70s? What were some of the notable customers? And well, when I first went there in 1972, they were getting a tremendous amount of highway salt for the state of New Hampshire. Both International Salt had an unloading facility and Morton Salt. Yeah. And we were hopping. There, there was a tremendous amount of salt moving. And we never, we never sat still. We'd go from over on track four, we'd, we'd move the salt cars to the next pocket, we'd pull the pin, tie a handbrake on, go over to the house track and pull the salt cars there down one pocket, pull the pin, go back over to track four, and we would do that all day long. And among other things, you know, going other, switching other uh, factories, industries, and that's just one crew. Then there'd, there'd be another crew out there maybe going to Newport and you might even have a third crew at, at some point. So when I first went there in 1972, it was hopping. Yeah. I remember Pete Bump coming out of the office one day and he said to me, he says, I know it's really busy and it's kind of hard for you to learn because it's so busy. He said, but just hang on. He says, he says you'll be okay. You'll, you'll learn this stuff. He said, just be patient. And I said, okay. And, you know, the salt was, was a big deal. Uh, Claremont Paper was our biggest other customer, and they were good for usually three cars of wood pulp a day, 40-foot CN or CP boxes, and probably a carload of number six fuel oil, bunker C fuel oil yep. a day, and then maybe two or three outbound B&M 50-footers for finished paper a week. So Claremont Paper kept us pretty busy. Koi Paper, we went there almost every day. Yep with uh, wood pulp, waste paper to be recycled, and or uh, bunker sea fuel. Yep. At this point, we're still going to Newport. And along the way to Newport, we had Davis and Simons Lumber, which uh, loaded wood chips for Berlin, New Hampshire, out on Washington Street. And when we got over to Newport, we had cars for the Valley Lumber, and they unloaded boxcars on the platform at the freight house, and they unloaded other bulk cars on the team track, public delivery track in the back of the yard. And Sturm Ruger would get in uh, occasional cars of uh, rifle stocks 
usually uh, black walnut rifle stocks from down south for their guns. And then we would also get waste uh, textiles uh, being shipped out of Newport, two from Abe Kaplan Company. So we still had a, a pretty fair amount of business in, uh, in Newport at that time. And the previous year, they'd gotten uh, salt into Newport, and I, I missed out on that. But that was quite something when they would take salt out of Claremont and head for Newport. And they would, the engines would get pretty hot going up the big hill between Kellyville and North Newport. In fact, it got so hot on the 31, that one day I was, I was washing the 31, I said to Bill Dow, I said, Gee, looks like, looks like you had some paint problems here on the shroud over the stack. Yeah. And he said, well, he said, I got the engine pretty hot going over to Newport one day, and it blistered the paint. Jeez. So he says, so I brought it in and smoothed it out and put a little fresh paint over it. Hope yeah. nobody would notice. <laughs> Newport is interesting. I like, I'd like to stick on that topic for a little bit. Because um, that being, at this point in time, when you were there, the, the eastern end of the line, which at one point ran all the way into Concord. Um, but... At this point in time, what were the track conditions like from Claremont to Newport? I've seen a lot of photos, and it seems that in terms of vegetation, it was it was encroaching quite a bit. The only thing that kept the, the trees cut back was the boxcars going through there. Yeah. And some places it looked like a tunnel. Yeah. It would look like it was square, just the shape of a boxcar. When we were going over there, if we had the 18, the 18 was a very hot engine. All the heat would go into the cab and you would roast in the 18. Well, Clarence liked it because it made his arthritis feel better, but boy, it didn't make me feel very good. <laughs> but you had to keep the windows and the doors closed or you'd, the cab would be full of bugs and, and leaves. So we come to an area where there was no foliage. You open up the, the, the doors and windows, yeah. get a little fresh air in there. But even with all that, we still had bugs and leaves all over the place. Yeah. It was a mess but they weren't gonna put any money into cutting the trees because they knew they were gonna be getting rid of that next. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of the, the CNC, it's always interesting to me, and I think other people too, how it was sort of cut back as traffic disappeared, which makes sense. Um, but, you know, the first section going being uh, West Concord to Kentuckook and then West Hanneker to West Hopkinton, and then West Hopkinton and Kentuckook all the way to Bradford, and then Bradford to Newport. Right. right. So I think that gets a lot of people confused when they talk about the Claremont branch and the Claremont and Concord is that it never really was, at least when the Claremont and Concord was operating it, used in its entirety, at least for regular freight service. Right. And to, to the best of my knowledge, there was never any freight interchange into Concord. Right, right. So uh, I've seen no record of it. The best we've ever seen is as far east as Kentuckook. Yep. And that's it. Yep. And there were no customers east of Kentuckook. No. The interesting thing was Swenson Granite in West Concord was on the Claremont branch. It was outside of Yard Limits. And when the Claremont and Concord started, they did not want to serve Swenson Granite. They didn't want to go all the way down, all the way down there just to serve Swenson Granite yep. when the B&M was so close. So when they made the sale, they changed the yard limits to just a little west of Swenson Granite so they could continue to, to serve it out of Concord. Yeah. However, because it had been 
out on the road and not in the yard, they'd have to have road jobs to service it. Yep. Rather than have a yard switcher service it. And they did that for years. Because if a yard switcher went out there, they'd have to pay them road rate. Yeah. They didn't want to do that. That's um, when we had Russ Monroe on here. He was talking about um, when he was on, I think it was BJ1, uh, the northern yep. road freight. They would go out there to Swenson's with like GP7s and RS3s and do and do the switching yep. with the road power. So, yeah, that's interesting. Um, but I think the Claremont and Concord is interesting because because it was cut back in sections, sort of the the interest that surrounds each section as it was cut back and, and when did they stop running here and when did they stop running there and what did they get for freight. And that's why Newport is so interesting because it held on for a while longer than Bradford did um, for almost – another 10, 13 years, you right. know, and, and that was the, the eastern end for a long time, but they were still running out there, even though, like you said, it was like the foliage was getting pretty pretty tough. I had one derailment at uh, Chandler's Mills. Yeah. I think uh, one axle went off on an evergreen freight car we were bringing over there. Yeah. And the, the guys, you know, got to put back on again, track department, put some ties in there, trying to hold the gauge, and it was wide gauge. But other than that, uh, we stayed on pretty good. Maybe a little ice on the crossings might be a problem yeah. in the wintertime. But, you know, we, we, they tried to keep those pretty well cleaned out. Uh, there was an engine that derailed one time in North Newport, and Bill Dow had to stay the night with it, to spend the night with it, just to make sure it kept running. Mm -hmm. But it was derailed. It went off pretty, pretty badly. Yeah. And I think it was because of snowmobiles packing down the, the uh, snow. Probably, yeah. So, but it's, the, the track itself, the, the, the former B&M track, was actually in fairly decent shape yeah. when, when they uh, transferred it to the CNC. And the CNC did a minimal amount of tire replacement and work. They would do it where it needed to be done, but they weren't real extravagant with the ties. Like you said, they knew they were going to get rid of it, so... right didn't make sense to put the money into it. Uh, it's interesting, you've told me about this once or twice, but the, the circumstances surrounding the end of service to Newport, um, the last run being in September of 77, and then there was some state interest in purchasing the line after, immediately afterwards. There, there, was, um, there was some talk about the state purchasing uh, that line, and it never went any very much further than the, than the talking state. However, there was one day that Pete Bump said to me, he said, uh, after, after work one day, he said, I want you to come back up to the office, bring your flagging equipment with you. Well, I didn't know what he meant by bringing your flagging equipment with me, so I brought several flags yeah. with me. And he said, what'd you bring all those flags for? So he said to bring you, he say how much to bring. He said, all I need to do is have you pilot this high rail truck, and there was somebody from the state with a B&M high rail and put it on at Pleasant Street and headed east. And I flagged the crossings and went all the way, I think, to Chandler's Mills. He was he was interested in the, in the track condition and the, and the foliage condition and stuff. So we got to Chandler's Mills and he said, is the whole rest of the line pretty much like this all the way to Newport? And I said, pretty much. He said, okay. It's the next crossing, took the high rails off and brought me back. Yeah. And that was the end of that. Mm -hmm. I think that was 
like New England Regional Commission, NERCOM, or something like that. Be, yeah. And that was really the last of it. And But the, the railroad sat in limbo for like over a year with just nothing uh, doing. And they finally started tearing it up. And they were unbolting all the bolts in Newport Yard. This was late summer, early fall. And they said, you know, the, the upper management said, um, you got to speed this up a little bit. This is taking forever. Just cut the bolts. Oh, yeah. So they just take cut and torch, cut the bolts, and, and, get, and get the stuff loaded into gondolas. And they said they wanted the timbers, the switch timbers, to go down to, I think, the Greenville and Northern. Sure. So, okay. So they loaded the switch timbers into gondolas, send the Greenville and Northern, when they arrived at the Greenville and Northern, they said, why'd you send all this junk down here for? These are terrible timbers. So there was a lot of back and forth about that. Yeah. He said, well, that's what you told us to do. So we that's what we did. So I'm not sure what happened because of that, but they probably were good enough for retaining walls and probably not much more than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you were, were you still there when they ran the last freight to Newport or were you... I was a conductor on the last run. Oh, so you were on it. Yeah. No. The last run to Newport went over light engine. Mac Tewksbury was engineer. I was conductor. Yeah. And picked up a, a Milwaukee Road empty box car, and that was it. Was it from La Valley? From La Valley's. Yeah. There were there were no other rail fans there. Nothing. Yeah. So if you ever see a picture of the last run out of Newport, it's probably one of my pictures. Yeah. I used up every bit of film I had in my camera. Well, it's a good thing you were a rail fan too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so that that kind of covers the progression of the uh, the decline of the B and M section of the line, at least the Claremont branch. But as you worked throughout the seventies, did traffic start to pick up or decline on the the city trackage? It declined little by little. Yeah. Uh, by this time, Joy Manufacturing moved pretty much all their operations out to River Road yeah. near Grissom Lane in Claremont. So the the, uh, by the late 70s, everything wound down with that, with the foundry and the assembly on River Street. The, the paper mill traffic still held pretty steady. Uh, the wood chips to Berlin, New Hampshire, that went out in 1972. Yep. Uh, Claremont Flock eventually closed down, so there was uh, inbound traffic and some outbound that went away. Uh, Hadley Industries, which had lumber, uh, they closed in the, sometime in the 70s, so that was the end of that. So we lost customers just one by one, and no great mass exodus, but just they were just they were leaving. Yeah, a lot of the uh, the industry that was in Claremont was similar to the industry that was in other places on the B and M and in New England too. One place that comes to mind is Manchester. New Hampshire being that a lot of the uh, industrial customers that you saw in Manchester similar, I think, in type to the customers on the CNC in terms of like manufacturing firms and small little uh, companies like that. So I think, you know, the carload business in New England was starting to trend a lot more towards bulk freight. Right. Then bulk freight, uh, you know, transloading facilities hadn't really been invented yet. Right. Some piggyback here and there. A little bit of piggyback, a little bit of container, yeah. but not a lot. Uh, 
with just the general decline in manufacturing yeah. in New England, uh, that malaise hit everybody, mm -hmm. not just the CNC. Right. But the CNC held on longer than some of these branch lines did because the the level of service was second to none. Right. When a, when a customer needed to move, there was no ands, ifs, or buts about it. An engine would be dispatched, and, and you'd switch that customer. There was uh, no hesitation at all. Mm -hmm. As soon as I got a switch list, you know, it's just get on that engine and go. Don't don't hang around and visit. Don't talk. Just go. Yeah. And 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 keep the customer happy. Because of that, you know, we held on to a lot of customers that would probably ordinarily have gone to truck. Yep. You know, uh, one one customer in particular comes to mind was the bakery, and finding out. You know, when they put the siding into the bakery to get the bulk flour in, and it's just come to light, it was in the mid-60s. Before that, they were getting bagged flour in. And when I was working there, they were getting the bulk flour in, and they were getting bagged flour into the yard in Claremont. And a fellow named O'Brien would, would be unloading the, the bags, rather. And it would be specialty flour, like cracked wheat, uh, oatmeal, all these things that would just come in bags because they, they couldn't use enough to make a bulk yep. delivery with. That was a, a, a way to preserve some business. And, and that business stayed until the bakery went out of business. Yep. That was, you know, a, a good steady business. Uh, you had Merrimack Farmers, which got bagged feed in from their plant in Bow. Mm -hmm. uh, Agway used to get in bagged feed out of their plant in Brattleboro. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And we had, you know, we had a lot of public delivery uh, cars too. Had stopover cars, which by that time were pretty archaic. A stopover car is a car loaded with uh, material for more than one customer, and they'd be petitioned off. And you know, the first first place would stop would be for the material that's in the doorway. Yep. And that person unload the stuff, they'd seal it back up, send it down to the next customer. Well, that kind of service had gone, pretty well gone away by the time I got into railroading. But we still had a few customers that did get stopover cars like that. Yeah. But it was, a, it was a pretty rare thing. Probably pound for pound, probably one of the more profitable operations in Sam Pinsley's sort of short line empire, I would think. I've always thought so. Yeah. Uh, I know the, the Montpelier and Barry was a pretty busy place when they first started, but I don't think that they that they held on as long as the Claremont and Concord yeah. did with the, the bigger paying uh, stuff. I think, so. but I think the Claremont and Concord was probably the big success story for, for the Pinsley Empire. Yeah, definitely. At least in my humble opinion. <laughs> I think everybody around here would sort of agree. Um, Sam Pinsley, though, is an, is an interesting person, and, and you got to meet him a couple times. Two times. Twice. Yeah. yeah. And the second time I met him, he came to the engine house at the end of the day. And he had a chauffeur-driven Cadillac. And he got out of the car and he started talking to people. He shook everybody's hand. He shook my hand last. And then he wouldn't let go. And I'm trying to pull my hand away. And he just grips my hand a little harder. 
And some of the guys are looking at me, raising their eyebrows, pointing. And I'm trying desperately to get my hand away from him. And he just, he just held right on. Uh, and I really wished I could have sat down and talked with him one-on-one -on -one and talked to him about his railroad empire. And, you know, he was my hero. But at that time, I was just, I was just too scared to say anything yeah. at all. So I didn't. Uh, opportunity missed. As so often happens in life, uh, it was it was interesting to meet him. By the time I met him, he was getting advanced in in, in years, and he was just starting to slow down a little bit. Oh yeah. After going at such a fast pace all those years, it finally started slowing down a bit. So he he never he never came to Claremont very often, but there was a small office just off of the freight office that was his office. Oh, yeah. And I remember seeing him in there reading the newspaper one day, and Pete Bump gave him my switch list and ushered me out the door pretty quick yeah. before I had a chance to, to talk with him and before he had a chance to notice me out there. But I wished I, I, wished I could have. Kind of reminds you of the when you had chicken across from Nelson Blount at <laughs> Bradford. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you were it, younger then. Yeah. But there's... You know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've seen various railroad celebrities, if you would, yeah. over the years, and uh, not really known who they were, or, or if I did, feel well, they wouldn't want to bother talking to me. Yeah. But that's not always the case. Right. Well, I feel like both of them may have, at least, you know, from a conversational standpoint. Um, so when did you leave the CNC? Well, my. The first time I worked, I worked there three months. Yeah. And I got a better paying job in town by five cents an hour more, but also less driving mm -hmm. and less expense for gas. And working in sawmill, which I really didn't like, it was pretty boring, monotonous work. Once you've done railroad work, nothing's ever quite the same. I worked in the sawmill. I was going to buy lumber, and build a house, and I marry my high school sweetheart, all that kind of stuff. And then that didn't work. And when we broke up, she said to me, you know, you really should go back to railroading. You really loved railroading. So about a month later, I called up Pete Bump. I said, uh, are you hiring? Now, Pete was pretty cagey. He says, for who? I said, me. And he says, yes. <laughs> when can you start? And I said, I'll, I'll give my, my employer two weeks' notice, to be fair. He said, that's fair enough. He said, so you'll be starting January, I think it was like January 10th yeah. or something. I went back, and boy, I, they were really happy to see me back again because they were shorthanded. The place was plugged with cars. It was snow everywhere. The first day I go back, I figured I'm going to be on the train. And I walk in the engine house and put my my lunch on the engine, and Bill Dow comes up to me, he's the mechanic, with a big grin on his face, he says, no, he says, you're not going on the train. He says, you're going to be working here with me. I said, Bill, I said, I'm no mechanic. I said, I'm a terrible mechanic. And he just laughed, and he says, look, he says, for what they're paying you, you don't have to be a real good mechanic. He said, you just work along with me. He says, and you and I will do just fine. Yeah. And we did. So it was a very cold morning. And he says, you Debbie clean switches. I'm going to show you how to clean switches. He says, after we have coffee. 
So we had a leisurely cup of coffee together in the office. So he puts his coat on and he says, okay, I'm going to show you how to clean a switch. Grab a switch broom, a shovel, and this little hook thing to pull the snow and ice out from underneath the rods yep. on the switch. So we clean the closest switch to the engine house. And he says, there. He says, now you know how to clean a switch. And he says, and this is the right way to clean a switch. It took us 45 minutes to clean the switch. Yeah. He said, but don't skimp. He says, this is how I want, this is how you need to do it. Okay. He says, so start doing, just do all the switches by the engine house area. Okay. So I just started walking up the main line, doing a switch, do the next switch, kept going. I finally got to the last two switches. He comes up in his car, toots the horn, rolls on the window. He says, he says, hop in. He says, time for lunch. So hop in, go back down to the shop, have lunch. I left my tools sitting right there. And he says, after you get done lunch, just go back up and finish those last two. Okay, so I did those last two. Come in the shop, did some puttering around of some sort. And that was my first day back. Then after that, he showed me how to sift sand. He showed me how to fuel up the engines, how to check the oil, how to add oil, how to load the sand into the engines, yep. water. And so basically after that, because I, 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 I traveled the furthest of anybody to that railroad and I was always the first one there. Yep. So I'd usually have the first engine pretty well serviced by the time he showed up and he'd show up and he'd open up the door and he'd start the engine running out. He always had at least one engine every day. And then when he talked with he talked with Pete Bump about the same time the, the crew was coming on duty, mm -hmm. and Pete would say, "Well, here's what we got for work. Uh, maybe we better have a second engine." Yeah. So we set up a second engine. Well, the second crew would be myself and Biff Rainey. Right. So a lot of time it was a heavy day. One engine could take five cars, five regular freight up to the city. Yep. If we had more than five, you need a pusher, or you need to cut them at the engine house. Yep. So they could do as many as 10 cars with two engines. So a lot of times they'd come across from the interchange, have 10 cars, or they'd, they'd just bring everything, and I'd be there at the engine house. I'd make the cut, and then they'd, have, then they'd start up again very slowly, because it's upgrade, and I'd, I'd hop on the second engine, and as soon as the rear car would clear the engine house lead switch, open up the engine house lead, get Biff out onto the main line, and then I'd uh, normal up the switch, get back on the engine, Biff would come up behind him and he'd couple onto the to the cars and just start pushing. Yep. And he'd open that, usually the 17, he'd open that wide open and they'd have their engine wide open and away we'd go. <laughs> we head up through, up past the bakery switch, through Pete's hole, then up to the big hill. Yep. We get up to Claremont. By that time, the grade had eased a little bit around Mulberry Street, and I'd pull a pin, so Biff would back off about a car length or two. I'd grab a flag, go up to the head end, and I'd flag Mulberry Street crossing while the conductor of the first engine, he, he'd make the cut, he'd start sorting out the cars for Claremont paper and Koi, anything that goes on the old electric. Then any cars need to be run around, such as cars for Claremont Flock, Agway or Merrimack Farmers, 
we grab those cars and we'd spot those cars up and the Newport cars they put on track three yep. and public delivery cars. So we could get a you know we could get things pretty well sorted out pretty fast mm -hmm. if there were if there were more cars to go at the junction to bring up by the time we go down and get those and the main crew would maybe start Claremont paper or some of that other switching, we bring the rest of the cars up, sort them out, and often we go to Newport. Yep. Biff and I'd be going to Newport. The other guys would do Claremont paper and Koi, maybe Joy Manufacturing. So they had a pretty good system set up so that everybody kind of knew what they were doing. Uh, there wasn't a lot of wasted moves. Right. It was, in retrospect, with all the switching I've done, all the railroads I've worked for, they had it, they really had it figured out pretty, pretty darn good. Good place to learn, for sure. Well, <laughs> the best place to in, learn. In some ways. Well, yeah, for sure. As long as Clarence wasn't shaking his fist, <laughs> that was okay. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Bruce Davison. And we're looking forward to seeing you back here next week for the conclusion in part two, where Bruce talks about his time on the Wolfboro Railroad and the New England Southern. Thanks for listening.